So this is the first uh, that we've done, first time we've ever done two in one day, and yes. normally wouldn't do it, but it's it's kind of working out that we do the the video ones. They're like 20, 30 minutes. Um, you can pull that. like It'll move all over the place. You can loosen it up and adjust it. Um, first one was a video conference. Today we are... Are you live? Yeah, we're going. All right. Yeah, our guest today is Dr. Roddy McGee from Total Sports Medicine in Las Vegas. Roddy, thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. I, I was just telling you that this makes you make me nervous, and which is totally absurd. It, it's ridiculous, I know, because I've known you for probably six or seven years. Probably. Six or seven years now. What was your first year at UNLV? Thirteen. Fall. I was there yeah. 12, 13, 13, 14. Um, yeah. So that was my second year in Las Vegas in my practice. Do you remember how we met? I don't. So I had, it was just over text or, or a phone call. Maybe I had a pillonidal cyst and I came back. I had had it uh, removed and I came back. It was removed during Christmas and I came back and I had to meet with a general surgeon or something okay and so i went to chambers and of course he sent me to you he told me to call you that you'd you'd send me to the best guy ever and i don't i can't even remember who the doctor was but um you you said yeah it's no big deal and you told me to go to this guy and he just checked on it and it took like two seconds and it was fine so we met from a cyst on my ass yeah (laughs) that uh that sounds familiar now the story that you bring it up and then joey had um I think you dealt with Joey with his hand when he broke yeah, it a little bit. That was a weird situation. I feel like we saw every doctor in Vegas when it came to that. I think you did. Yeah. And I, it was broken. What are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the reason that... This was what I sort of felt with the situation. I, I knew what was going to happen. No matter what we said to him, I knew he was going to try to swing. Yep. And I knew he wasn't going to be able to. Yep. It was, just, was really a, just a bummer because of the time of the season oh, it was terrible. and the situation and the, how well they were playing and how well he was playing. Yep. We needed him. We had, that was when we were going, we were, it happened in the conference ter- or the weekend before the conference tournament. He slid into home head first and it happened. So he missed the conference tournament and that whole week we're trying to figure out what to do. And then we went to Oregon state. We had Joey was out with, I don't even remember what it was called. It wasn't his hamate. It was, I don't know, something weird. But mm-hmm. we had two guys out with hamates. Yeah, elbows. you had a look at the hamate fracture, right? Uh, and so know. did yeah. TJ. His was different than TJ's. It was because oh. TJ was hamate. For some reason, I thought they had the same injury. It was like but some whatever, like a peanut-shaped bone in his hand. I don't know. I just remember that. But a hook fracture sounds right. Um, but the reason that... I get I got nervous thinking about this was just because of the fact that you've been on Rogan and that's like the ultimate podcast. It's it's beyond a podcast now. It's kind of like the biggest show ever. And yesterday or the other day when you were going to come over, I was watching it in the beginning. Just like I psyched myself out just because it was you sitting there across from him. And I'm thinking like he's going to be he's going to be sitting talking to me. So that was just weird. Well, it's funny that you would even say that because when I look at it, it doesn't even seem like that was a real thing that happened first. And number two, then I think the same thing when I watch other podcasts now for that. And I'm thinking like, how did I sit in that chair that this other person now is sitting in? There's been a lot of ridiculously famous, influential people in that chair. There really has. And definitely not one of them. Yes. I mean, you're, 
he dropped your name. I mean, over the last couple of years, I remember specifically I was at, this is so weird, La Mirada High School. And I was listening to a podcast while I was recruiting a kid. Yeah. And he would said your name like six times in the podcast. And I texted you like, dude, he won't stop talking about you. Yeah, that's pretty unreal. So obviously there's rules like HIPAA. You can't talk about people, but right. he specifically said on it, you have my permission to talk about it. <laughs> He's been very public about, yeah. um, you know, that I took care of him and that he did well. And, and, uh, you know, I was fortunate that he had a good outcome and he's been very generous, uh, talking about it and telling people that he came to see me. And, um, it's just been really, really nice to me, like for these last, uh, it's been five years that I've known him. And, uh, when he first invited me to be on the podcast, uh, you know, I sort of laughed like, okay, that was, that was a nice thing to say. That's never going to happen. Yeah. And then, uh, and then he said it again. And, uh, again, I was like, well, I was like, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. That would be great. I would love to, that'd be an honor. And, um, and, and again, I thought like, okay, this is like a fantasy. This is yeah. not real. And then, uh, finally he pressed me one day. He was like, like, when can you fly to LA? And, and I was like, whenever you want, I mean, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll literally come right now, shut everything down for <laughs> yeah. that. Of course. So did he, um, did he find you like just because he knew that he could get stem cells from you or was it you guys got um, linked up some other way? No, he, yeah, he was referred to me, uh, by another physician and, uh, he, um, had an injury to his shoulder that he did not want to go through a surgery. And so we just talked about options and we decided to try a, a biologic injection and see if he could get some benefit from it. Um, and he, he did amazingly well. Yeah, I mean, he's one of the most fit people in the world, so you figure he's going to do it the best way. He's going to rehab the right way, and he's smart enough to know that, like, if you tell him he's got to take time off, he's going to do it. And, it, I mean, it's something that it's not like it happened once and he talked about it, you went on the podcast, and then you just kind of disappeared. It still keeps coming up because he talks about how he gets injuries and they're nagging and then he gets injections or he refers back to the first time that you worked with him and just the results that he got. And what's crazy to me is the fact that he wanted you to come on and talk about it. It's not, not like you're not interesting, but it's like he doesn't want to just get the injection and then, oh yeah, this is going to work. He wants to know everything that's going on. And while I was watching probably like the fourth time I've watched it or listened to it, you guys, there was, I mean, he had so many questions. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? Man? Yeah. Like, He's got an incredible intellectual curiosity and uh, a near photographic memory when it comes to certain things. So one of the, one of the recent times you mentioned that he, like he's said my name a bunch of times and it's, it's surreal to me that he, um, one that he would at all. Number two, that he, um, remembers certain things about like interactions that we've had only here and there over, you know, several years. But one of the first times, uh, he came into my office, um, he had a couple of friends with him and one of them was also a very known person. And the funny part about that, and I'm embarrassed to even say like who the person was because, and that I didn't know who it was, but, um, 
he he was asking me some questions and I didn't know who the guy was. I was just yeah. like, yeah, I mean, wait, we could do this or that. I, I like, I was just polite to him and yeah. just talked to him kind of regular. And, uh, <clears throat> so then he, that person was on a podcast with him and they started talking about it and he said, Oh, Hey, do you remember like that time you were, we were at Dr. McGee's office and, uh, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, how, first of all, how did you remember that? Yeah. That was like four years ago. And, you know, you've only been to my office a handful of times, but, and then he had all these details about it. I was like, that's incredible. And then we were, we were joking back and forth that, um, you know, we can, we have very selective memory and very specific memories for certain things. And then other things, terrible, uh, for example, things that our wives tell us to take yeah. care of. <laughs> yeah. So now that information uh, yeah. is harder to keep, uh, keep in there. Yeah. So, <laughs> We we've talked about it quite a few times, um, but the effect that going on his show had. Remember, you told me the one thing that stands out is you told me that immediately when you got done, he told you like, "Hey, you're going to need to hire some people to answer the phones." <laughs> yeah. So it's something that I imagine happens to everybody that goes on a show. Obviously, he has people like celebrities on there, actors, other comedians, um, and I. There's followers on social media just spike. Um, as a as a doctor, was it? Was he right? Did it happen like he said it would? Yeah, we've had patients contact us from all over the world. It's been it's pretty incredible reach to see um, like his impact and the the number of people that listen to him and and really follow like the things that he's talking about. Um, one of the first uh, <laughs> me, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. One of uh, you know, it's like something like 150 million downloads a month for his podcast. It's insane. So it's a, yeah. It's an unreal number. Um, but, um, the first time that he ever said my name, it was, um, you know, it had been a while after I first met him and started getting contacted by all these people on Twitter and on our email and calls to our office and stuff like that. And, and I didn't even know like where it was coming from. Oh, yeah. So he had uh, told me that, uh, somebody that he knew, uh, was having trouble with, his elbow or something like that and wanted to talk to me about getting it checked out and and then uh and then all these yeah, it was the same day that all these other people started talking to me so then i went and listened to that podcast and he said my name and it was like oh my gosh like this is crazy yeah. and i was like it, it seems like the people listening are like they're listening but also taking notes like they've got a notebook by their desk Absolutely. and they're writing everything down because people were asking very specific stuff so it was a, it's an unreal phenomenon to experience. That's a better word for it, phenomenon. Yes, yeah. that's, that's it's. Well, I'll tell you another story that like one day he was in the office and um, just kind of casually was like, "Hey, let's take a selfie," and I was like, "Okay, sure." And uh, then uh, he was gonna he was gonna post it on social media, and he sort of like touched his phone and he was like, "And f about five million people just saw that." Yeah. And I was like, holy cow, that's, that's just crazy. And so of course he leaves the office and we all like pull up our phones to look at it. Yeah. And it had been about three minutes from the time he took the picture to when he left. And it was like 1800 likes in, in those three minutes. It's, and it was over, it was over a hundred thousand by the following day. It's like a stupid picture of like, just him and a doctor. Me standing there <laughs> like, you know, 
his I mean his dog has more followers on Instagram than ninety nine percent of people that are on Instagram. Yeah, it's crazy. And like taking notes though, I've done it the first time that I listened to the podcast with you. I was taking notes just because I was tr- I was just like trying to keep up. I wanted to know what he was talking about, but I realized like like blastasis is the one that sticks in my head just hearing that word and like a couple other things and um i've gone through i mean there's thousands of podcasts that he has so you there's something for everybody but there's ones that have come like to health dieting um animals aliens like the, the, the ones that he talks about aliens and weird stuff that's those are the ones that i really love but the carnival coyotes yeah the coyote one that's i drop facts from that show to people all the time like oh i heard on rogan that this but it's like i don't even question which he says all the time like i'm stupid don't listen to me but everything that he says i believe it to be true so it's like <laughs> i just drop these facts around like um the carnivore diet when he when he first it was i think um it wasn't dr Rhonda patrick it was uh, somebody else, but they talked about it and how it you Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson. There we go. And then his, his daughter started doing it. Yep. And it was just like, he started following. Her. Yeah. So I like, I'm like, Oh, I can shed fat doing that. Like all I have to do is eat steak and, and eggs, like whatever. So I started doing that and I lost weight and then he's going, he did that again, started in January and he's like going back to it. And it's ex- how he says it is exactly how it happens. And it's just like the fact that an individual who's so successful being a comedian has now he started this 10 years ago whatever it was he's arguably more successful doing the podcast than he is as a comedian and he's one of the biggest in the world i just like it fascinates me people that are at the top of top of their game and the fact that you were there with him and he wanted to learn from you kind of tells everybody that you're one of the best so would you agree that you're one of the best <laughs> no, I mean, not even close. Yeah, I knew you would say there's, that. No, I mean, I know exactly where I am in terms of like my practice and my growth and understanding of the things that I take care of, how much more I need to learn and understand. I know who all the guys are that I look up to and, you know, their skill set and what they're good at. And I, so I know like there, there are guys that are just so you know, incredibly more intelligent and skilled than me at what I do. Um, but obviously like I'm, I work really hard at it and it, it means a lot to me to continue to improve. So that's kind of how I look at it. But the, um, I think probably the, like one of the biggest lessons of, um, that you can take from what you see him doing well at is just how authentic he is with everything that he's doing like what you're watching when you see him like that's that's what he acts like that's what he talks like that is that's who he is Mm -hmm. and and him um and a whole bunch of people that i um have watched and watched progress and things like that like you see when somebody's in the position where they're genuinely being themselves they don't kind of deviate from that and they're doing something that they really love and care about um, when you get that mix, like it's pretty easy to get really good at something because, mm-hmm. um, one of my favorite guys that was on there is, uh, Naval Ravikant. If you haven't listened to that guy, like he will blow your mind because, um, he's an angel investor, similar, like kind of what we were talking about a little bit earlier. Um, and he talks about principles that he followed from the time before he had a lot of money and was very successful, um, up until, and, and maintains that stuff now. But 
one of the biggest things is just kind of, you know, being what you are and then, uh, and, and finding the, the niche that that fits to because there, you will have an audience, you will mm-hmm. have people that are interested in what you're doing and, and things like that. But if you, if you're pretending like people are going to see it pretty quick. Yeah. You can tell like there's some, I've, I've bounced around because I try to like, he was the first podcast that I listened to and it was like every day I'm listening to when he puts them out every day. So after about a year, I'm like, okay, there's gotta be some other ones out there that I like. And I bounced around from different ones and you can tell that people it's a lot of people it's fake. It sounds like the radio voice. That's why I always like when I'm doing the intro, I feel like I'm like a radio DJ, like, and now we have this and I, <laughs> it's just kind of, it's easier to just flow into it more casual, but the people that, just act normal and like they're just seem like they're having fun they're having a really good time they're really interested in what they're talking about nothing seems fake those are the ones that you really want to listen to and i mean that's him on every single one you can there was uh i can't remember who it was because i shut it off there was one that you could tell he didn't really enjoy talking to the person (laughs) and i think he was an actor or something but i just shut it off i'm like "Uh, i don't want to listen to this because you could tell he just wasn't he didn't seem into it yeah um we can stop talking about him now. This yeah, is this right. is about you. But I've that's now that I'm not nervous anymore. We talked about that. You're just we got your celebrity status out of the way. Um, <laughs> it's like that's just such a ridiculous sentence. You got one. For, you have one. Let me, me let me think. You're a celebrity. Nice. Okay. Okay. I'll so let it. me have that. Um, you. I don't even know how to ask. When did you decide that you wanted to be a doctor? Oh, uh, good question. Um, I don't think it was like this thing where I always knew like what I was going to do. Um, I obviously like I had uh, big dreams in baseball and that, uh, you know, talent limits all uh, careers and <laughs> mine was shorter than a lot. But I got to, you know, I was a walk on at the University of Utah and got to stick around there for the five years. I had a redshirt year and then stayed and got to play a little bit. I certainly wasn't a star, but um, got to be a part of that. And it was very meaningful to me. You know, like baseball for me was kind of like this arena where I got to learn how to set goals and develop confidence. And, and that was kind of where that got to play out for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we all have some carryover to baseball from baseball to life. I think all baseball guys kind of see that and yeah. look at it in those terms. Uh, cause you spend so much time doing it and, and, uh, all those years in practice and games and stuff like that. But you learn all those little things. Hopefully you do. Yeah. You know, from your experience with it. Um, so, you know, that was, like I said, that was kind of the, the place for me to sort of figure things out, learn how to develop some confidence. Cause I really didn't have a lot of that as a real young guy. Yeah. Um, but all those little things over time kind of add up. You start to see that and figure it out. Did you, okay, so you, you redshirted, you redshirted because of injury or was that just no, your freshman year? No, I was just year? skinny and weak and yeah. they, <laughs> save my, my they, redshirt. Me, they, need, they told me you need another year before you're, you know, <laughs> going to have any value. My redshirt was the opposite. They're like, you're fat, you're slow, <laughs> like you got to get in shape. You're not going to beat that guy out. Um, but that honestly, that redshirt year for me. I think we had 10 outfielders on the team that, yeah, everyone, everyone needs year. 10 outfielders, Yeah, <laughs> but I learned more about the game of baseball, how to prepare 
how to compete, how to how to watch games, and I I learned more in that one year just sitting on the bench and watching than I did in any years playing. And I think now, like a lot of guys, they think of a red shirt as like insulting, sort of like a punishment or yeah. And and they take it the wrong way. And when we had to tell people that they were redshirting or suggest that they redshirted because we didn't want to just say like, hey, you're going to redshirt and not play. That's when I had to take them to the side and say, hey, look, like you got to look at this as a positive thing. Like you're going to have a you have four more years after this year. Yeah. You get to practice every day. Some of them got to travel. You get to take BP, do all those things. And you can watch and learn and ask questions and sit there. And I think that's it's something that's getting uh, harder and harder to find kids that are really like super into it. Yeah. And we talked about at CSN the other night, we had a long conversation about just the mental game. And you, you talked a lot about the mental game in the operating room, in the office. And it's really, there's not a lot of differences. Like you have to be able to slow things down when you're, do, when you're in a surgery compared to slowing it down at the plate. That's that's something that I'm assuming you learned from baseball. 100%. I mean, those were ideas that, uh, you know, developed on the field. And there were some of my favorite classes in college. So we had a couple of different performance enhancement classes that really were, you know, sports psychology principles. Um, and then uh, there was an there was an actual sports psychology course. And then we had access to um, a sports psychologist on staff at the University of Utah who also was the sports psychologist for the Utah Jazz. Wow, that's and huge. this was during the times of uh, Carl Malone and John Stockton. So, you know, two of the top 50 players in the history of the NBA, yeah. um, Hall of Famers. And this guy was, you know, there working with them and talking about these, these principles, these guys that are elite performers who, you know, were also smart enough to know, hey, there's other things I can do uh, besides basketball drills that can improve my play and give me a chance to win, to give me a chance to compete and be better than another guy who's also an elite performer. That's, I mean, what years were you at Utah? 92 to 97. There's still college programs and athletic departments that don't have sports psychologists. It's totally insane to me that you're competing at that level and in some cases for inordinate amounts of money and you wouldn't recognize that as a skill to develop that would give you a competitive edge against another team or player. Uh, because it's, you know, why would you not want to address all the spokes on the wheel? Yeah. I mean, we talked about just breathing, like teaching yeah. people the first principle that you learn awareness yeah. of breathing, right? Yeah. Don't hold your breath and don't breathe too fast. Anybody can learn that. It's so, and it has nothing to do with your talent level or, or skill. And what's nuts is like guys that you recruit. I mean, just from experience, they're skilled. And if you're recruiting them to play for your program, they have the physical talent and the skill. Like there's yeah. a little things that you got to tweak, but 99% of them, they're just not mentally re ready for it. And that's why they struggle. And that's, I mean, that's also why guys come in and do well their freshman year. And then once people get the reports on them, their sophomore years, they go through that slump. And it's because a lot of guys have never failed before. They've yeah. done well. They think they're hot shit. And then yeah. mentally, when they go into slump, they don't know how to deal with it. That was something that in my baseball career, I, was, I mean, my junior college, I learned a lot, but it didn't really like click until I got here. It was like, okay, I'm 
definitely not as skilled as these guys. Like, how am I going to get an advantage? How am I going to have an opportunity to play? And it was, I mean, the preparation, uh, being able to calm down, like take a when, deep breath. When do you think that, um, like, started to be something that you were aware of during your college career? Well, we sat – our head coach in junior college is now the minor league coordinator for the Mariners. We sat under a tree in Land Park for 45 minutes to an hour every day before practice and went over – So you got introduced game. to this when you were a freshman? Yep, my redshirt year. So every year it was – it was – almost the same thing like the same progression through the year and by year three it was like i didn't have a choice but to like buy into it it's like okay i'm hearing this like this is the third time i've heard it like i when you were starting to see the benefit too at that point yep and it was kind of a weird time because that my red shirt sophomore year like i wasn't really playing that well i was trying to use all the mental skills that he was teaching us. But at the same time, I wasn't performing and I was worried about like, is this going to be the end of my career? And then once I got here, I was alone during the summer. Everyone was gone playing summer ball and I'm, I had to take summer school classes in order to get eligible. So I spent a lot of time just in the cage by myself. And that's when it was like, okay, I can't just get in here and take 150 hacks off the tee. I have to visualize the pitcher. I have to th- like move the tee around and imagine it's a curveball. I have to slow down my breathing because it's 115 degrees in this cage. And then once it came to the fall, I really wasn't playing that much. And I got the whole, you're fat thing from Chambers. So it's a couple of times I've heard that, but we were, we all have heard that. Yeah. We were playing Fullerton in the fall game and we were taking BP and he called me over and he was just like, Hey, like I can't play you. Like you, you, you're heavy. He said you're fat, but I'm trying to remember a little nicer. Like you're slow. Like you, your bat's slow. You can't hit. And he's like, but you're, you're a great leader. Like you're a great team guy. We, we want, we want to have you around. So you need to do something in order to stick around. And then we went, Joey and I went home for Christmas. We worked out twice a day. We came back and it was just kind of like that spring, everything clicked together. Like my gotten better shape, which helped in all physical aspects, but I was almost like I was preparing for the last three and a half years for that moment. Mm-hmm. So I would say that spring was. The, the spring of 13 was when it really clicked. Okay. And honestly, that was the only reason that I was able to continue my baseball career and get drafted was because I was, I mean, it was all about the mental part of it for me. Um, it's significant. So Chambers never called me fat when I was young. It was always calling me slim because I was, <laughs> I was so skinny. Yeah. But he would tell me when I was like 15 or 16, uh, you know, Rado, you're going to be like, still skinny when you're 40, but you're gonna have a little belly yeah. <laughs> and he'd make it funny. And then when I was 40 and I was still around him, you know, he'd come and he'd like poke me and be like, Hey, what's going on there? That sounds about right. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Uh, so there's obviously, I mean, how much the school that you had to go through was ridiculous, but at what point did you figure out that being an orthopedic surgeon was how you wanted to go? So in medical school, you have the first two years are, uh, in the classroom. And then the third and the fourth year are the clinical rotations where you, you go and you follow doctors, you're in the hospital or in a clinic, and, and uh, you're learning and helping and assisting uh, with the care of patients. So, um, but as you get towards the, 
end of the third year is when you apply for residency, which is a training program in the specialty that you're going to be in. And it was, you, you have to decide. It's kind of a, it's a strange um, time in that training because you really haven't had a lot of exposure to much, but you're supposed to make this decision about what you're going to do the rest of your life. And so it's, it's difficult for everybody. And orthopedics is really competitive. And so, you know, everybody's sort of anxious that, okay, I want to, uh, you know, the people that want to do it, they're like, I want to do this, but, you know, gosh, am I going to get a spot? And um, so you struggle with that. And one of the guys that was in the class ahead of me, um, who was kind of in the same boat as me, wanted to do orthopedics, wasn't sure if, uh, you know, we would have a, a legitimate shot because it's so competitive. Uh, but his attitude was just, it's what I want to do and I'm just going to go for it. And so that kind of gave me, again, it's like he gave me a little bit of confidence to say to myself, like, okay, whatever happens, this is what I want to do. So I'm just going to go for it. And, uh, and I ended up, you know, I got lucky and kind of ended up in a spot and a program in Chicago and got to train. I was very fortunate to, to do that because now I get to do something I really enjoy. Was there ever a time where like you just wanted to bail? Um, th so the, the winter of the second year of med school is like max DEFCON one, like <laughs> 10 out of 10 stress. Yeah. I mean, people are like, people in our class are like, they're breaking down. They're like crying, you know, studying. They're like, how am I going to learn all this stuff? You're studying for the first step of the board exam and you're just getting crushed with like the hardest part of the academic side of med school. And, uh, and I don't think there was ever any, like, I'm going to quit, but there were times where you just felt like, you know, how the hell am I going to get through this? Like, it's so, I can't handle it. Yeah. And you feel like that a lot. And then, and then residency is a whole new level of beat down because it's, um, <laughs> you know, it's physically taxing cause you're working like a hundred hours a week. I mean, they actually had to make a law that said they could only make us work 80 hours a week. Only. And then you have to like get cut off. Yeah. But, um, so physically it's demanding, uh, like academically it's very demanding cause you're reading as much as you can possibly do. So now you're working more than full time. You're studying like it's a final exam every day. Um, and then you're just being, uh, you know, mentally abused by, the attending physicians and the senior residents, you know, constantly being challenged, like, Hey, what's the answer to this question? So in, in medicine, they call it getting pimped. It's kind of <laughs> stupid, uh, stupid term, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll be seeing patients in a group. You have the attending physician, you got the senior residents, and then you're in the beginning, you're the, the junior kind of like you're the freshman in, in, uh, in baseball or whatever. And, and, uh, the, be asking you questions constantly challenging what you know what you don't know you know humiliating you and making you feel stupid when you don't know the answer and it's it was it's like a constant battle just to like get through the day and like feel like okay at some point i'm going to be one of these guys that knows the answers knows how to manage these situations has the skill to you know perform the surgeries and so was that i mean i guess what I'm thinking is like you just getting abused, like you said, being the freshman, people just shitting on you all the time. Yeah. The whole time you're thinking like, I'm going to be this at the end of the day. Like, no, you've, yeah. it's a constant feeling of like, I am not good enough. And you, um, you do get to the point where 
you know, you develop more and more confidence, but it is a slow grind to get there. There's no big jumps. You know what I mean? It's just a lot of reading and reading and reading. You're just reading and reading and getting your experience in it. And there's never a point where you make this leap like, okay, I'm getting it now. You're just always like, this is so overwhelming. I have, and sometimes you're just like, I don't even know where to start. Like, where do I even start reading? Like, <laughs> I have so much to learn. Yeah. And, you know, we have the system and we have, you know, stuff that we go through to, to make sure that you get it. But, um, it's just tough. I have a buddy. You're also having a good time because you're with people that are kind of like-minded people, you know, like sports and, you know, there, there's a lot of good guys and girls that are, you know, you're working towards similar things in your group. Um, but you're, you're challenged and it's, it's good. And, but it's, uh, sometimes it was tough. And you're like that group with you, you're experiencing that trauma together. Yeah. So they know exactly what's going on for sure. Uh, I have a buddy, uh, Craig Shul, who's going through it mm-hmm. right now. Yeah, and he, he's, he spent some time with me. Yeah, he's the man. I mean, the first yeah. day I met Craig was over the summer when I came in. It was the, my first day on campus, and he was on crutches. He had just, like, broke his back doing whatever. Jeez. And I just, like, I walked walked with him. But from the day I met him, it was like, okay, this guy is one of the smartest, like, hardworking guys that I know. And now he's going. he was up at Reno. And when we went up and played, he would come for like a couple innings, like, Hey, you want to go get a beer after? And he's like, no, dude, I gotta go study. Like, and it's, it was every time it was every day. And now he's going through, he's trying to get a resident residency here. Mm-hmm. And I keep checking in with him. He's like, ah, oh, dude, I'll know next month. I'll know in a month. I'm like, he's, I mean, it'd be awesome if he was here and I think he would be super happy. But I mean, I think out of all the people that I know, Actually, Tyler Iodance is yep. doing it too. Like those two guys are probably the only two guys that I ever played baseball with that I would actually trust yeah. to tell me something that's wrong with me and that they were going to fix it. I would totally believe them. And I think like would have never thought that when I was playing with them. But now looking back, it's like, yeah, okay. I probably should have known that those two guys were going to be doing this. Yeah, those are two great guys that are going to do awesome. Yeah. And- they both spent time with me and they're really smart, you know, great work ethic. And so, so at what's, at what stage of it did Craig spend time with you? He was pre-med. Oh, okay. So he so, was applying to medical school. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, and then Tyler was a med student, um, yeah. applying to orthopedic surgery. Did he have his big old beard at the time? I don't think he, no, he didn't. <laughs> that was he, gone. Yeah. He's, I haven't seen, I mean, he's been off. I mean, it's probably been four years now since I've seen him. Mm-hmm. And luckily, we went up to Reno and we were able to see Craig. Um, so that's pretty cool. But, I mean, I just, I can't wait for the day. I'm going to, I feel like I'm going to be relieved when he gets gets somewhere. Just, um, just because I know how hard he's worked and it's been a goal of his. I mean, he, yeah. he wants, like we've talked about you before, he wants to get on your level. And then it's, it's crazy. I can't imagine, I hated school. Like when I, I mean, five years of college was enough for me. And then to see these guys just keep going on and they're still doing school, which is, is nuts. Um, how many years total was it for you? It's five years of, uh, undergrad. Cause I had the red shirt year, mm-hmm. uh, four years of medical school, five years of orthopedic surgery training, and then a year of sports medicine fellowship is what I did. So I did the one extra year after tra- uh, ortho training. Okay, so you, you did your fellowship in Chicago, or was that where your residency was? In Birmingham, was? Alabama. Okay, and then 
how did it happen you coming back here um well i mean i i grew up here and went to high school here and um was just trying to decide you know where would be the best place for me to have a sports practice and it only made sense to go back to where i grew up playing sports and mm -hmm. have relationships with the people that are playing and coaching and involved and so uh then i you know i talked to all the groups in town and ended up uh, joining up with Dr. Yu. So we talked about, I mean, Tommy John specifically, just because it was a baseball thing. Um, how, how has that progressed since you did your first one? Because I know you've posted articles about different, um, different ways to treat it, new forms of surgery. Yeah. Um, is it totally different than six years ago when you did that first one or? Um, the one thing that's different for me, well, I guess there's a couple of things. So there's been sort of the increase in interest in, um, the primary repair of the ligament versus a reconstruction in the right type of injury. So we're trying to, um, split up the types of tears and partial tears and then see, okay, are there some guys that maybe they don't have to have a full reconstruction? Um, perhaps it can be repaired and then, you know, those guys might have an opportunity for a little bit of a shorter recovery period. Um, so you have to be really thoughtful about what patients you consider for that because it's a narrow indication or, you know, category that fits that. Um, and then there's been a little bit of interest, um, in what I would call augmenting the graft. So a graft is a piece of tissue that we take. And most of the time in the, in the case of Tommy John surgery, you're taking a, a tendon from the forearm or yeah. one of the hamstring tendons, and then you're weaving that into the bone tunnels to reconstruct the ligament and, you know, put some collagen on that side of the elbow to provide that stability. Um, there's a, um, some very strong stitch material that, uh, we now weave into the graft to increase the load to failure of the graft. So they use that stitch material in the primary repair. And then we started doing this with our uh, ACLs and, they, and with our uh, Tommy John surgeries. And we actually just recently had our, um, our technique articles published in uh, the Arthroscopy Techniques Journal uh, that kind of describes how we do it. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, that was pretty cool to just see, to have kind of an idea and then, you know, work on it and then submit it to... Uh, to the journal and get it published was, uh, I was pretty happy about that. How do you go about that? Uh, there's a whole bunch of steps and away and whatever. Did so. you like, did you, you wrote it? Uh huh. Yeah. Did you like sit there like, damn, this is good. I got, now I gotta, <laughs> now I gotta submit no, it. <laughs> no, like you have to enter into that with like so much humility. It's, you know, cause you know, guys much smarter than me are going to be reading it, critiquing yeah. it and, and then deciding ultimately like, is this good enough? Uh, to be, you know, put out in front of the world. I thought that's pretty damn cool to have that, have some of your work in a medical journal. It's, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's like a step and it's like, okay, that's one little thing. And now it's like, okay, what else, what other contributions can we make or how else can we learn and, and, uh, possibly contribute to what's out there. One of the coolest things about just being a doctor, specifically an orthopedic surgeon, is the constant. I mean, it's called a practice. Yeah. Like it's not like you learn it all and then you get the job and everything stays the same. Um, you're. I mean, I've told you this. You're one of the smartest people I know. 
but you're smart because you're constantly learning. And I think a lot of uh, a lot of people just get complacent. They're like, okay, I made it here, like I'm good, and and they just don't continue to improve. It's the same. I mean, it's the same for you if compared to a, a baseball player. Like if baseball player stops trying to learn and get better, like it's going to end. Yeah. If you stop trying to learn, like you could seriously destroy someone's arm or, or anything. You could, you could just be, you know, not helping them to the degree that it's possible, you know. Um, you know, there might be ways to take care of them that um, cause less pain or, you know, have a shorter... Uh, recovery time or, you know, better chance to return to the sport or activity or work that they care about. Um, but it's one of the challenges and one of the cool things about um, being a physician is that you are, it's a requirement that you continue to learn. So it's, it's tough, but it's also, it's good because it forces you to continue to try to get better. And so that's, you know, I think with anything like that, if you are if you put yourself in an environment where it's you have to have that, I think it's uh, it's great because it forces you to, and then and then you you'll migrate towards the things that you like, and then doing that work becomes not work. It's it's yeah. fun. It's what you enjoy. It's you know the things that you're having a good time with. So how do you uh, how do you find time? I guess where does that fit into your schedule? Like learning new stuff. I mean, you're married. You have kids. You're <laughs> a doctor. Yeah. Like. Gets, Where are the hours? It gets harder and harder and you just have to create a system. And so I have a, a system for how I figure out what I don't know and what I want to learn more about. And then I just try to do that a little bit at a time all the time. Yeah. So just so, little time in the office when you have like a, yeah. your lunch break, you're well, reading or. Yeah, it's it's time then it's at night, sometimes early in the morning. And then, you know, we have uh, we have continuing medical education requirements. So I have to go to conferences every year and then. Um, log uh, the credits and and so that is time when I'm uh, learning and then during those you see got you know guys are talking and they're bringing up uh, articles and current research and that you know then I'll go and kind of follow up with that and and try to see what they're talking about and um, there's also we have a, um, access to a, a terrific lab here where we can uh, practice techniques and and uh, continue to improve the kind of the physical skills too. So yeah. it's just like, you know, like working on your swing and, yeah. you know, working on uh, a push bunt. Like, you know, you got to mix all that in and make time for it. And and uh, those kinds of things are, uh, they're, they're things you got to continue to pursue if you care about being good at it. Yeah. Okay, one thing, a couple months ago, you, I don't even know where we ran into you. But we, Joey and I came to your office and you spent a good hour standing there helping him get better at what he's doing. It's like entry level. He's just beginning being a rep and you went through a PowerPoint that you had made. <laughs> T- to me, that was so cool. I mean, I can't, I mean, I was still like sitting there just like, like, what am I, like Rogan was in here. Like, that's what I was thinking about. And we talked about it a little bit, but I just wanted to like sit there and, and listen to you guys. And it was so cool to me that you were willing to help him and try, try and help him get better when you really don't really know him that well. And realistically, like what he does has no impact on you. So why did you do that? Um, you know, part of, uh, being a physician is teaching. Um, you know, as we're coming through medical school, 
the older medical students are teaching the younger medical students, the interns and the residents are teaching the med students, the senior residents, the younger residents, and now, you know, the, now I'm in attending. That just means that I finished residency training and I'm and I'm working and I, uh, um, you know, I'm, I help with uh, training the the residents in the the Valley Orthopedic Training Program. Um, it's just part of what we do. It's part of that whole system is that, you know, you learn and then you share your knowledge. You know, we're, I'm educating patients every day, teaching them things that I've read that they may maybe don't have access to or never encountered before, never even thought to read about it. Mm-hmm. So it's just, I think, just part of, um, like, the system that I've been in that, you know, if you see somebody that um, there's something, information that you can share, then then you just do. Yeah. But also, you know, he's part of this baseball family that I've been a part of. And, and I, I can know or I do know and I can see how interested he is in wanting to do well and get better. And when you're in the beginning there and you haven't gone through a lot of cycles of this stuff like an old guy like me now, um, sometimes you don't even know. <laughs> where old guy. <laughs> shoot, I'm 45. I mean, I've, I've not been a baseball player longer than I was a baseball player now. Oh, wow. I've never weird. thought about it. When I get to that day, yeah. It's weird to say. Um, But, um, you know, what I recognize is that you may not even, at his stage, know the questions to ask or how to even study or learn or what those steps are. And one of the things that I put in there was kind of being um, aware of and, and telling people to beware of people that start off advice with all you have to do is <laughs> and that, that yeah. leads into like, you know, some shortcut to yep. being good or getting better at something because and I think it says this in that talk, like all you have to do is all of it. All you have to read is everything, everything there is. I mean, if your goal is to be uh, elite or a master of a topic, you really got to read everything there is to know about it. And then, you know, put your own time and thought into it and, and your own slant on it or your own way of thinking about it or your own way that you can teach somebody else about it. Mm-hmm. So that's, um, and that's hard. It takes a lot of time and it's not a quick process and it's, uh, uh, but again, because, you know, as you get older and the, and you see like how time goes by and you see like, okay, if I, if I'm chipping away at something over time, like down the line, I'm going to have this big, pile of stuff that I, that I, uh, you know, that I've accumulated and, and knowledge that I can build on and understand and share with other people. So it was, I mean, it was really cool to just stand there and watch you help him, but it was, it's also been cool to watch him because I mean, it was all baseball. Like it was, his life was baseball. And then when it ended, it was kind of like, okay, what's going to happen? What do I do now? Yeah. yeah and we all, we all kind of felt like that at the end of it. Right. Yep. And the amount of people that he knew from baseball got him the job. People, hey, I have this guy. He was a stud. Interview him. And he ended up getting this job. But, I mean, it's like you said, it's the baseball thing. People are looking out for each other. They want, if you proved your worth and that you you had a good work ethic on the field, like, it's it's like, yeah, he may not know anything about it, but he's going to work his ass off to learn everything that he can. And I know that that meant a lot to him just because, I mean, he looks up to you. You're a, you're a doctor. You're obviously smarter than him. Physician. Do you prefer which one? Same thing. Roddy. Roddy. He just like Roddy. Yeah. Um, but knowing like 
he hated school. I mean, he was never great in school. Mm. And then just to watch how hard he studied and he still like, I mean, he sits on his laptop. There's a book back there that Ari chewed up about something from I don't, some technique, but he's constantly on his laptop reading, reading stuff and he's competitive and he, if he doesn't know something, it bothers him. Yeah. He wants to figure out what it is and, and he wants to, I don't know if impress the doctors is the right term, but it might be just prove that he deserves to be there. Yeah. And that, I mean, it's been awesome to see him go about that. And I mean, I think he's, he seems like he's good at it. I don't really know. And until you're yeah. in a well, surgery with him. Of, so, and so I did, I actually did medical sales before I went to med school. Oh, so really? that's some of where that maybe comes from and wanting to share that information is that I went through sales training and saw sort of how the, a company will encourage people to present things and talk to their physicians. And they have their, they have their goals of sales and, you know, dollars. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's the, the other side of it is if you really want to get to the level of being a consultant with your doctors, um, and you want to understand how to communicate with them the way that they're looking at things, which will, I think, get you, you know, more time and attention and more respect and, and then ultimately, you know, more success in that field is um, there's a way that we talk about topics and, and communicate with each other. And there's a way that we try to read, understand and evaluate things. And then so if, if he had a little bit of that view, I think it just gives him an advantage when in, as he's trying to get better at it. Yeah. And I, I mean, knowing that he can call you if he ever needs help is, is huge. Yeah. Um, I want to get more into the psych i won't call it sports psych because you're not in sports but yeah you're you're in an operating Maybe room performance psychology is kind of the category there we now. go yeah we'll go with that um it's one thing to have to prepare yourself mentally for a game or to go up and and hit in a crucial situation but no one's real no one no one's cut open during that. Like you're not standing over a body trying to fix something. How do you prepare yourself to go into a surgery for, I mean, to perform Tommy John? Like, it's not like you just stroll in like, Hey, let's do yeah. this. Like, yeah, sure. What's, don't do it that way. What's your process? Um, so, okay. So the first few things are obviously like I've, I've done the surgery a number of times. I did it in training. Um, there's, um, a lot of great resources now online. I mean, learning now is so much easier and you have so much access to information compared to even when I was a resident, certainly when I was in college, like we didn't, I mean, you had to go to the library, you had to find a book, you had to like, that was it. That was mm -hmm. all you had. Um, now I can, you know, turn on my laptop and, and watch any number of lectures by the most famous people on earth that have done, you know, thousands more of these surgeries than me. I can learn from their experience, their tips, and we call them pearls, like little things that are um, helpful hints for how to do things, tips, things like that. Um, so, and I, I, I created something that, and I shared this with uh, your brother also, something called the case prep sheet. And I basically broke down every element of the surgery uh, by every category. And then I try to fill in all those gaps with um, the best evidence and support and information for what goes with that. And then as we go along, you know, I can look through there and see different parts of that, that I'm still not good at, or maybe I want to look and see if there's anything more current than what the last thing that I looked at. 
Um, also, there's resources where I can uh, literally watch the surgery and, and see techniques from guys that, again, have done many more than me. Yeah. And and then I have access to this lab. And that, so if you go back to um, the first, um, well, let's see if I don't think this is a HIPAA violation, but <laughs> the, um, we'll try to keep it uh, so that it's not. Yeah. The first Tommy John that I did was. Um, a, you can I say who it is? Is it a HIPAA violation if I say it? Because I know. Um, I guess. Yeah, we'll just know. pass it over. Yeah. Let's just skip it just yeah. in case. Um, so anyway, he um, literally like the same week that he had the surgery. And I had done a bunch of the cases. But, you know, I went into the lab. We um, can have access to cadavers. So, you know, there's people that decide to generously donate their bodies to science. It's kind of the mm-hmm. term, right? So um, we got an elbow and I literally just a, did. Just the arm? Yeah, it's like you know, like a hand to the shoulder. And I literally just did the surgery on the cadaver. (laughs) Just did like a dry run. Yeah. You know, it's like taking some warm up swings. Wow. And it, but it was great because there were a bunch of little, you know, things that as I was going through there, um, you know, it was like, okay, like little reminders and things that, that I saw just kind of doing that practice run, um, right before his case. And that made it just routine. It was like, okay, here's, it's the same thing I just did the other day. Yeah. So if you 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 do more than one surgery in a day, right? You have you have certain yeah. days during the week where you're doing doing the surgery. Yeah. So more often than not, they're different types of surgeries, right? Oh yeah. So like you might do a Tommy John, then you. Well, I guess what's your most popular or most common surgery? Um. So I actually looked at some of these numbers the other day. The the um surgery that I've done the most in my practice is actually ACL reconstruction, okay. which was interesting because a much more common surgery is just like a simple knee scope for like, if you have a meniscus tear, yeah. um, certainly much more common injury. And that should be the most, you know, the thing that I've done the most, but it turns out I've actually yeah. done more ACL reconstructions than that surgery. So how and do that'll, you, that'll probably change over time, but yeah. How do you bounce from doing one type of surgery to going straight into another one. Like obviously you said you have your prep sheet, but yeah, get to getting, I guess keep like getting your, I shift gears yeah. in the middle. Um, I mean, it's just so much repetition. I mean, by the time I was, um, a practicing orthopedic surgeon and I was fortunate because I was at a residency training program where we had a ton of volume and we were afforded the opportunity to, get our hands on things in surgery from the very beginning of training. So even when I was an intern and a second year resident, um, I I was training with guys that were letting me do a lot of the steps of the case and it helps you, you know, build the repetitions and gain confidence. And also we had, um, I think I counted more than 60 different doctors in our training program that we did cases with. So that let me see a lot of different, styles and techniques and learn little things from a bunch of different people. Um, see guys that did something, one thing really well, other guys did something a little better. One little thing that was a step in the case that made it easier than take another one from another guy. So you start Mm -hmm. piling those together and it, it, you know, allowed me to get, um, a lot of experience with, um, what we were trying to do. So, um, By the time I was starting practice, um, I think I counted something like, you know, I had done something like 3,500 surgeries. Wow. 
and you know some individual surgeries over 500 at that stage which is well past the learning curve for being very comfortable with a lot of that now i'm still to this day doing cases and 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 experiencing things that i haven't done a lot of and that's when i have to go back and and continue that learning process kind of start from the beginning so i but the the amount of stuff you know has to be insane. <laughs> it's just it's just kind of <laughs> crazy to me. But uh, this well, it's just in a lot of cases it's just stuff that you just don't read or haven't had exposure to. So yeah. it may seem smart, but it's just really like okay, I I happen to read a chapter on that, and you just haven't I, don't have that book I didn't, yeah. on your shelf. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm probably not going to ask you to borrow any books anytime soon. Uh, this is the first sports site conversation that I really had on here in depth was with Taylor. Yeah. And I really enjoyed that. I didn't really intend for it to go that way. It just kind of shifted and the conversation led, led to that. And we both were just kind of going back and forth, bouncing it off. But the main thing that we talked about was being present and like how tough it is to be in that moment in a stadium when there's 50, 60,000 people, you, you're facing the best hitters in the world. Um, arguably more important for you to be present during surgery. So we talked about the other night, just basically what the idea of being present is. So can you give me your take on yeah, your, we your, your definition? Yeah. When I was listening to uh, that conversation and the thing that popped into my mind was uh, the idea that um, you literally are not having any other thoughts on whatever it is at that moment you're supposed to be thinking about or that you're deciding to think about. Mm -hmm. One of the most uh, surprising things that I heard as I was learning more about sports psych and how it related to baseball was the idea that if you then had some thought enter your mind that you didn't want, like, oh, I'm nervous or, oh, I, I hope I don't give up a bomb right here. Yeah. I hope I don't strike out. Like to actually stop and allow that thought to happen rather than fighting it or, you know, trying to not think about it, which only makes you, you know, perseverate on it even more. Yeah. But, um, so like reading that, it was like, you know, permission to have normal human emotions. Yeah, like, right. Oh yeah. Okay. Like I shoot, I'm actually nervous right now. But then this, this idea, and this came, comes from the, uh, the Ken Revisa and Tom Hansen book, um, just to say, okay, I'm nervous. I'm going to be nervous for five seconds and literally count in your head and then just say, okay, like I'm, I'm done with that now. And then you have this cue in your head for, okay, whatever I want to be thinking about. Now I'm going to tell myself that thing. Yeah. And I'm going to get my mind on that and get back to it. Um, so, um, so that is your question about, you know, what does it mean to be present? It's, it's the ability to get yourself to where you're thinking about one thing and that's it. Like you have no other stuff on your mind and your attention is on a particular thing. Looking back at your baseball career, do you remember trying to get in that mindset, like trying to be present? Was that a focus of yours or was that something that you think developed later on? Um, I, I'm certainly a lot better at it now at, you know, than I was at 22 or 20. Um, but the, um, the introduction to those ideas for me, uh, it was a dramatic leap in my performance and my ability 
I mean, my ability was still the same. It still yeah. was, you know, ordinary <laughs> on a baseball field, but, <laughs> but I was able to play and perform so much better just because, um, I learned how to kind of drown out some of that noise. I, ner- I learned how to relax. I learned how to control my breathing, like very basic stuff. And that made a big jump. And then, you know, those, those skills were just like any other skill, like we talked about. And it's, it was very uncomfortable trying to do any of that stuff in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Like you're so wrecked with self doubt and then it's so awkward. And just like, you know, if you ever, you know, learn to ski for the first time or snowboard or some other skill where you just have no idea what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. And then, you know, more comfortable you become, the more, um, there's parts of it that are natural and you're able to do. And, and then you're working on higher level skills. Right. And then, uh, so it, it was cool to see that progression, but it was really cool just to see like how I could take that right to practice and immediately feel better about myself, like trying to do whatever we were doing. Yeah. It's, I mean, the thing we talk, talk about breathing and, and what's going on. I, the first time I remember, and it stands out in my head, like, being present and realizing what it felt like was just sitting there and trying to focus on just my breathing for a minute Yeah, and like only focus on your breath. And then every time you got distracted by something else, it was like, okay, start the timer over Yeah, and something so simple as, Hey, just focus on inhaling, focus on exhaling. It was so difficult to do, but now it's like, I mean, I haven't, I've been out of baseball and out of those competitive situations. I can still, if I wanted to sit, sit there for a minute and only focus on my breathing. Yeah. That had nothing to do with my ability on the field. It was something totally outside of it that I could control and do. And it's like, it gets overlooked so much now. It's like you talk, I was at the UNLV game on Friday and I asked a kid like, Hey, how much are you focusing on your breathing? He was like, never. Yeah. Like that's such an easy thing. Like yeah. that can help slow you down. Um, but those distractions are very easy to creep into, especially when you're first starting. Does Dude, any th- just think about how tense you are when you're breathing fast or holding your breath. Yep. And then when you just like exhale and like everything's just relaxed. Yep. Is there is there a I mean, you've got kids, you've got a wife. Like how do you keep them from popping into your head during the middle of a surgery or are you just so you've, you've done so many now that you're locked in? Um, well, so I, and I, I think one of the things that, um, has improved over time is I can be in the middle of something and I can have other things come my way and I can attend to more than one thing better. Um, so, um, but there's other times too, where you're, you're not even, sometimes I'm not even aware of this happening, but you get so zeroed in on what you're doing. And, uh, we talk about this all the time. Like you can, you can go, I can go all day. And and then like at the end of the day, I realize like, man, like I, I haven't been to the bathroom. I haven't eaten anything. I haven't had anything to drink. Like I have been totally oblivious to caring for myself, yeah. like in some normal ways, because I've just been so, you know, concentrating on what we're trying to do. And, and, uh, all the stuff that has to happen during the day of surgery. Um, I, I think it, it goes back to that, you know, that principle, like if I'm in a situation, I have to be concentrating, you know, very specifically on something. And then 
have something enter that's a distraction, um, I can mentally like step up, step off the rubber, take a breath, and then get back to it. I mean, it's, I, I imagine it's something that's pretty easy for you to get locked back in now that you've done it so many times. Um, is there, what's your physical, like, step off the rubber? Like, if you're in a surgery and you get stuck or oh, you get distracted. Yeah, I think we talked about this the other day. So, the um, one of the things that, uh, this was uh, from one of the hand surgeons that we trained with when I was in residency. And his thing was just, if you're looking at something, if you're having trouble, if, you know, it's not making sense or you're trying to, trying to sort out like what your next step will be, um, he would just take this, it's called the bulb syringe and, uh, with fluid. And he would just sort of sit and kind of flush the wound and then, you know, clean it out, kind of look at it. And, and he's like, you're not, you know, you're not really doing anything, but you're just kind of taking a time out and, yeah. but keeping the, the case going, you're, you know, clean out. So sometimes you have a little bit of blood in the, in the surgical field where you're working, clean out some of that stuff, get a little fresh look. And he would say, change the color, you know? <laughs> um, so that was, that's one thing that you can do. But, um, the other thing is you can, if there's say, you know, 10 steps that you're working on and if one step is not, you know, you're not finishing it to completion the way you want or something's just not looking right, or you're trying to think about or make a decision like, okay, what's next? Like, I have to decide if I'm going to do A or B. Uh, you know, there's times we can just shift gears and go work on a little other part of it and then come back to it. You know, just kind of take your eyes off of it, come back to it, give it a fresh look. So that's that's kind of like, you know, stepping out of the box or stepping off the mound and just kind of taking a minute to reset the gears and get back to it. Yeah, I mean, I definitely would want you to be totally locked in on what you're doing like knowing i mean it's it's the same thing there's no difference in stepping off and you doing that it's just like a mental refresh get you back to that that present moment um you said blood like you just said squirt squirting blood and i just got an image of just blood everywhere is there <laughs> any really like i know that. i know that it's not like that but is there anything or was there anything at the beginning that grossed you out about cutting people open or um, yeah, well, the first time I ever was in an operating room, um, it, it was a spine surgery. I didn't know what I was looking at. I was a, you know, pre-med student. Um, I got to kind of stand next to the table and look. And, uh, I mean, I literally had to leave the room. I went and sat in the bathroom. I was pouring sweat. I was having this like existential crisis. Like <laughs> what the heck is going to happen to my life? I can't handle it. I thought I wanted to do this. I'm not cut out for it. You know, you're, I'm going through all this stuff. And then, uh, you know, it's just, it, you find out like literally every single person experiences that to some degree. Yeah. And, uh, and it's just a matter of, uh, you know, more familiarity with it and getting exposed to more stuff. And, and over time there's really like, it's sometimes it's like crazy stuff we're doing in there. Right. And sometimes I even step back and remind myself like, this is crazy. Like, what are we even doing to yeah. people? <laughs> you know, a knee replacement. Like I'm literally taking a saw and like sawing someone's femur. And that's, oh yeah, that's, it's bananas. Yeah. Right. So, um, but the, uh, you know, you just kind of, you start to normalize stuff and, and it becomes more routine and, um, the things that are, you know, pretty crazy to most people like become something that happens, you know, a couple times a week. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. You see it enough times and it's just normal. Um, okay. Knee replacement. 
our dad has terrible knees and is getting to that. I think he's approaching getting both knees replaced. Um, this I've talked to him about stem cell just stuff before, just what I've heard from you and yeah. um, just other other podcasts and things. How much are stem cells replacing surgeries like mm, we're knee replacement? Very far from anything like that. Really? Yeah. There. I mean, so the first thing is there's. So a stem cell is a, you know, a cell that can replicate and become another stem cell or differentiate and or change into a cell that we want it to be. Mm -hmm. And there is literally no one and nothing in the United States that that's doing that right now. So like people need to just stop even saying that word. So this was a a topic at a, I was just at this biologics Alliance conference and it's a group of, uh, you know, orthopedic surgeons and other specialties that really trying to um, push the field forward with legitimate research um, and and kind of an honest approach with patients about what we have, what's working, for what, and uh, the, the way that it should be with you yeah. know, a scientific approach. And so that was one of the first things that, you know, came from the meeting is, is like there nobody is using or has access to stem cells. There are, there are cellular treatments and there's a lot of questions with you know what's going to be okay with the fda what has to go through the process of you know being approved as a drug yeah um but so um there's nobody growing cartilage there's nobody the other thing too that's a popular term is regenerative medicine we're not regenerating anything anybody yet Uh, is that going to happen like i think it probably is going to happen in our lifetime um but you know, the things that we're seeing are, you know, maybe uh, some better pain reliefs, a better anti-inflammatory treatment. Um, but in terms of like growing new tissue or healing something like I'm not sure that um, I'm not sure that we're there. There's certainly a lot of places telling people this and making them believe that it's true, making wild, um, unsubstantiated claims. Um, and there's a whole bunch of clinics that are going to get shut down and maybe even some people go to jail, like for really? some of this stuff, seriously. That's so, wild. Yeah. So for, for somebody like your dad who has knee arthritis, it sounds like, um, you know, the first step is evaluate it with an x-ray. Um, there's a handful of conservative treatments, um, and things that we do to manage knee arthritis. And then the end of the line, when, Nothing's helping when somebody's having pain every single day. It's interfering with their life, and they know and understand the risks of the surgery. They're willing to accept that, and they're willing to go through it and go through the rehab to get better. Then they're a candidate to discuss knee replacement. Yeah. Well, he, I mean, I remember him having knee pain forever. Like one Christmas, he tried to get up after opening a present, and his knee locked up, and he kind of just like fell over. What the hell is going on? But he was a catcher in college so yeah. i mean and pro ball so i mean he definitely i doubt there was knee savers back when he was playing but right i mean his knees took a beating and i think it's just at that point he's got shots he's he's basically done it all okay um but I, he's definitely i mean i think he'll be relieved to get it done yeah. um as far as anti-inflammatory and like just you saying like the pain relief stuff uh one of the biggest things right now is cbd yeah. How much, I get, how educated are you on that? Are you, are you pushing that at all to people? I talk to people about it all the time. Yeah. Okay. So, and, uh, um, 
a good friend of mine's uh, named Dr. Adam Miller in Milwaukee. Um, he works with a company called Folium Sciences. Hope I'm getting that right. Um, but they are a, uh, a manufacturer. They have an FDA designation that their CBD products have 0% THC. Um, and he's been a part of some studies on both uh, as an anti-inflammatory and uh, anti-anxiety. Um, and there's a lot of promise with that. And, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of um, good feedback about it. Again, just like with um, any of the biologic stuff we're doing in that whole stem cell category, um, which, you know, can't say that anymore, apparently. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the, the, you know, we need further research. We need more evidence to support what something's going to be helpful for. There needs to be more regulation in terms of what you're getting. Yeah. So there's tons of companies now that have products. Um, and you gotta, you just gotta be sure like, what's the, what's the actual content? What are they, you know, mixing in with it and that type of thing. But it definitely seems promising and patients ask me all the time, is this okay? Or should we try it? And, uh, in most cases in the setting of my office, like there, it's reasonable to, to try. Or that's not something that you're prescribing, right? That's just something that's over the counter. Yeah. So so do you think it'll get to a point where that might be something that you, that physicians are prescribing? Um, so that would be a process through the FDA if they determine, um, that, you need a prescription or something before mm-hmm. if it's, you know, available that way. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, I've used it, uh, on many occasions, you know, when I was in the hospital, when I had the shingles and I, I mean, I still have pain occasionally, but was it like an oral or a topical or it was the oil like the like drops. Yeah. The drops. Okay. And yeah. so Cause there's tablets and there's drops, oh, there's everything. There's, a, there's like can, salves and yeah. And so I got, I mean, I still have some in the fridge, but I was getting, um, I was just going to the dispensary and buying it right down the street. And when I took it, I noticed that it helped like with the nerve pain. It just, it wasn't bothering me as much. I wasn't on any other medication, but like when I was taking it, like I've had two knees, two surgeries on my meniscus and my knee bothered me a lot but whenever i took it it was like oh damn i seem to feel better yeah nice. it, it seemed like definitely something that that worked for me and then um i don't know just something that i read that the one in one so it's like equal parts thc and cbd and honestly it felt exactly the same to me so i just went back to using the regular cbd mm. and um the other thing was i had would you say the self, ones that self, i tried have had they have zero percent THC. Yeah, so it's been the, just the CBD. like the muscle rubs seem to work. Like we know athletes yeah. that use it. Like when I've used it on my shoulder. Yeah, um, it's it's just kind of it's something that was seemed like so taboo, like yeah. even just a couple years ago, and now it's just it's intro it's being introduced more and more, and then you see like professional athletes that are sponsored by by companies. So, I mean, it's it's crazy to see how something that could be like so frowned upon like you just think of just been a huge cultural shift in the attitude about it for sure yeah and and the fact that like marijuana is becoming legal and in states it's just it's opening up the opportunity so it's kind of crazy to see where where that's going to go but like you said there's so many companies that are just like churning it out so the the issue with it for you know like for people to know and understand is just you gotta you you may not know what's in it because in due to the like the regulatory side of it um you know just be careful where you're getting your stuff and do a little research into 
um, who who's making it, where they get their stuff, what they're if they have this FDA designation, you know, that demonstrates that they there's no THC in it, because um, uh, I think that's actually important. Yeah, I mean, like you can people can't have THC in their system. Like certain people get drug tested all yeah, the time for jobs. You don't wanna, yeah, you don't want to be you know using a cream for your knee pain and find out like yeah. you might get suspended by your job. Yeah. That's, that's wild. Okay. My, the last question before we wrap it up is somebody who's, uh, just finishing up school and going into med school, trying to become who you are, like any advice for them? Uh, just lots of reading and grinding and, you know, hard work and as much exposure, um, as you can get to the specialty that you want. So, and if you can get in there early, so like we have even first and second year med students to come and spend time and just kind of see what it's like day to day. Um, and, uh, yeah, just try to try your best to find a good mentor. And cause that's one of the fortunate things that I had is I always had good people that were very encouraging and positive and, and, uh, you know, keeping me going and pushing towards, uh, you know, each step. I was hoping you were going to say breathe. <laughs> I remember to breathe. Yeah, just chill out a little bit. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I really appreciate doing this. I don't. I don't know why I was so nervous. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I got over it. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Roddy. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah.